0: The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Advent is a season of waiting. We wait for Christmas Day, the historic birth of Jesus, and as Christians, Living after the resurrection, we wait for Christ to come again. But instead of waiting, often people associate the Advent and Christmas season with busyness. We have family events. We have semesters that are wrapping up. We have work that piles up because we're going on vacation. And so many other things that, that let the busyness override what we gather to do. We gather as God's people to worship a God who moves among us. We gather to rest in his grace, to sing in his love. And we can lose the sight so easily of the big picture of what God is up to in our world. How can we remember and participate with God in what he's doing in our world? Well, one way is by looking at the different ways we see God at work in ourselves and in others. And so through Advent, we are going to look at six different streams, six different dimensions of the Christian life. We've been talking about these over the past few weeks. And this sermon comes because we had a cancellation in our service. Snowstorm got in the way of gathering as God's people. And so this sermon comes a little bit later on, but still a part of this series. As we're looking at the Advent story through the eyes of each character, we see this sermon focus on Mary Mary is a picture of the prayer-filled contemplative life. My least favorite movie uh, to watch is romantic comedies. I grew up in a household of boys, having two brothers, and we didn't own a single romantic movie ever. Even Disney classics, you know, Beauty and the Beast, were considered outlawed. When I started dating my wife, she tried to get me on board. But that didn't work too well either. But it is amazing what someone will do if they actually really like someone. And so I have endured uh, romantic comedies over the years of being uh, married to my wife. And My beef with romantic comedies is, is the predictability factor. To me, every single movie has the same plot. And this plot always has two predictable things, the tension and the resolution, right? We've, we've all seen it. In every romantic comedy, there is something. There's always something that the viewer knows will eventually cause tension, strife, anger between the two that are in love. Maybe one of them chooses career over the relationship or the partner that is, is clearly not the one for them and, and they're still uh, with them for some reason. Whatever the tension is, there's, there's always the dramatic resolution to the plot. Uh, the, the romantic comedies always, 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 always end with the two people who should be together, together. The tension is always resolved, and it's always resolved so neatly. Right? It's, it's like a, an orchestra that tunes their instruments. Right? Ro- romantic comedies always end with, with perfect pitch. But here's where I have to confess something this morning. I like these endings. They melt my heart. As cheap and as predictable as it is, I love it. And deep down, I bet you do too. Why? Well, I think we, we all have this deep desire for these movies to end with in-tuneness, even when we know that it's not realistic and that relationships don't actually work that way, and that the, the, the life of, of, of the characters is more complex than what the plot, what the plot has in, in it. We may not agree with the, how realistic or how sophisticated these, these, these endings are, but they get us. I wonder if this is because we were created to live in tune. Could it be that the joy we get from watching a movie that ends perfectly is actually a memory trace to the Garden of Eden when we did live in tune, in tune with God, in tune with each other? Now, after watching a rom-com, there's always the back to reality moment, right? This is um, when you finish watching the the movie and then you start arguing with uh, your friends who cleans up the popcorn or the dirty dishes or where to go for drinks after, Right? Even when we, we, want, we know our lives, we want our lives to be a, a certain uh, tune, in tune with one another, we get a sense of out-of-tuneness all the time. Our marriages and families are hard, difficult, and we often get signals crossed. We live in tension. It takes work. We often live out of tune with friends. Right? There's, there's things that get in the way of, of our relationships with our friends, could be small things like you know living with a group of friends in university it's it's you know dishes that often get in the way but it could be bigger things right you know space moving away to a different province um, different religion we also live out of tune with work often our jobs feel like they're they're asking too much of us adding too much stress and business to our lives and, and they or they're asking too little Right? They're boring or, or unfulfilling. We experience out-of-tuneness often. And, and the, the thing that we struggle with is, is how? How do we tune ourselves in our lives? How do we live in tune? The Bible talks about this. It has this idea that we live in tension with each other. The Bible says that it's actually because first and foremost we live in tension with God. Adam and Eve disobeyed God before the curses came before they realized that they were naked. And the Bible says that we will never actually be truly selfless, truly able to live in tune with others, unless we first understand and practice living in tune with God himself. And this is what the prayer-filled life seeks. Richard Foster calls the contemplative tradition the steady gaze of the soul upon God. And as we've been moving through this series in Advent, we see that this is foundational to the others. One of the people in the Bible who lived this way was Mary, Jesus' mother. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like for Mary? A young teenage girl, by a lot of accounts theologians estimate that she would have only been maybe 12 or 13 years old at the time the angel appears to her. And she gets a message that would have sent anxiety and stress producing shock waves throughout her whole body. Notice that the text actually indicates that it's even in the very sighting of the angel that disturbs her. She's troubled. Then the angel comes to her and continues to describe the reason. That the angel has visited. It's because Mary will conceive and become pregnant, giving birth to a son. And he will not just be any child. This will be the son of the Most High, and he will become a king. In fact, he will be a king that will reign forever. Mary responds with a very technical, clarifying question. The angel goes on to describe that This child will be a work of the Holy Spirit, and again, that the child will be born will be a holy one. After getting over the shock of this message, I wonder what crosses through Mary's mind. She can't be naive. She knows what this means for her. After all, she's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And in those ba- days, being pledged to be married to someone w- was just as strong a commitment as the actual marriage itself. You know, now it's, it's seen as a time where you, you say yes to a person and you begin planning your wedding. But, but in those days, to be betrothed to someone w- was, was a covenant. You made a covenant with a person. You made a promise that you will be married to them. And so according to Jewish law, anyone who's found to have committed adultery, which is what it appears that has happened to Mary, would be stoned. Harsh, right? But do you feel the tension? We can quickly and easily look to the angel's words and say, favor? How can this be favor? And so Mary, given time to think, Response. And her response, her open, trusting, faith-filled response is an absolutely amazing thing. She opens up her heart. She opens up her mind. And, and above all, though, she just, she trusts and submits herself to God's word saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. Wow. Do you notice the in-tune response? with what God is doing in Mary and in the world? To many of us, this would seem to be an out-of-tune moment and would probably result in an out-of-tune response. Something like, what's going on? Why is my life being thrown for a loop? Why me? It doesn't take long to think of some times that I've responded to someone else with an out-of-tune response. You know, but what about God? How do we respond to him? I'd love to stand up here and tell you that I've lived in tune with God my whole life, always walking in step with him, responding openly, trustingly to what he's saying to me. But we know that this isn't the case. I know this isn't the case. Richard Foster talks about the prayer-filled life as an intimate sharing between friends. And there have been times in my life when I couldn't even hold a conversation with God, let alone a friendship. I wonder if the same is for you, too. I have to say that that I have a deeper respect for Mary after thinking about her in this prayer-filled way. She could have been a Moses, right? Arguing with God about details or making excuses for why he wasn't a good candidate for the job. I'm sure Mary's list would be long too, right? It's so cool to see that these excuses that Mary could have piled up are the very things that she actually worships God for in her song, the Magnificat, right? Being poor, being young. She could have been a Jonah, right? Hearing from God and being given a very specific message and an order to go to the Ninevites. And and instead of responding in, in faithful obedience and openness, runs the opposite way running out of pride and fear but no mary models an in-tune openness to god's activity in her life how can we learn from mary well first and Richard Foster reminds us of this in his book, The Streams of Living Water. He says, we have to spend time in the presence of God in order to walk in step with him. Just like any relationship, it takes time. It takes effort to create an attunement with God. We know this is how relationships work. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we do experience the breakdown of our, our, of our relationships oftentimes. And, and, and it takes work and effort to hold them together. And so what many people do to prescribe, uh, to to help uh, to bring relationships back together and into flourishing is to prescribe time together. I can imagine that many people who are married, if you find yourself on a different page than your spouse or your family, one of the best ways that marriage and family therapists have found to overcome this is is to set up weekly non-negotiable date night or family nights. right? Whether this is going out for dinner, or or coffee at the waterfront, or staying at home with the kids watching movies and eating pizza, it doesn't really matter. The important part is spending time together. Investing undivided time into the relationships. If you are living out of tune with God, spend time with him on a consistent basis. A lot of us spend more time with our favorite sports teams than we do with God, the God of the universe who created us, who sustains us, and who loves us. Secondly, Richard Foster uh, calls us to pay attention to the ordinary parts in our lives. You know, another important part of the prayer-filled life is learning to pay attention to the ways that God is at work in our day-to-day ordinary places. What is he saying to you as you do your laundry, as you work on that project, as you play volleyball or watch your kids play volleyball? One of the most powerful questions we can ask ourselves as we do mind blowingly ordinary things is where is God in this? What is he saying to me right now? What can I rejoice? What can I lament? And we don't always have to have answers to these questions, but sometimes just the questions themselves begin to uncover a lot for us. If the incarnation is true, and and that is what the Christian season, the Advent and Christmas season is about, is that God became a human, then, then that shows us that God cares about every minute detail about our humanness, what makes us human. Whether it's changing diapers, whether it's working on spreadsheets, whether it's writing papers, whether it's getting on the school bus, God is active and alive in these moments. Mary pays attention to these things in her song. She recognizes God at work in her life through this event and recognizes even that, that she is learning about God Himself through this experience. She says my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She begins to connect the dots to God's actions throughout history and traces it to the present moments in her life. What would happen if you did the same? Mary exemplifies for us what would happen. What happens when, when we commit ourselves to a prayer-filled life is that things begin to bubble up. When we begin to gaze upon God, spending time with Him, pour—it's like a, its like pouring yourself a glass of, you know, Coca-Cola and seeing the fizz rise up. Have you ever seen that? It, you pour it too fast sometimes, and then it begins to bubble up, an overflow out of your cup, right? When we spend time with God, things bubble up inside of us. This is the Samaritan woman at the well, in the the Gospel of of John, where where uh, Jesus is beginning this conversation with her about water and it takes a turn and it turns into one of the most intimate transformative conversations that she's ever had. What happened in that moment was that that things bubbled up. Spending time with God causes things to bubble up inside of us like with Mary. But not all of this bubbling up is comfortable, is it? Just like the best of friends, if you have a really good friend, they're not always gonna put up with things that drag you down. It's easy to hear about the prayer-filled life as being central, foundational even, to to living in relationship with God and committing ourselves to it without real change, without real friendship with God. We can just say our prayers, spend quote-unquote time with God, and move on with our lives. But Richard Foster puts it like this. He says, we train in the spiritual life so that we have the ability to live rightly. It is not fasting for fasting's sake, but fasting so that we can learn feasting upon God. Right? The disciplines of the spiritual life are a means, not an end. This end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's what God desires for us. And the prayer-filled life is how we begin to understand the life that God is calling us into. What Foster is saying is that we can't make the prayer-filled life about prayer. Often we want a God who will let us stay the way we are. But imagine if you had a friend who, who didn't care about uh, that, that you ate pizza and drank Coca-Cola every single meal of the day. They should say something. They should nag you for it because it'll eventually kill you. See, we really don't want a God that just lets us be comfortable. We want a God that will save us. And entering into a relationship with, with, with God as a, as a friend means that he will save us, but that means challenging us to grow Challenging us to change. And we shouldn't expect anything less. Mary fully, fully sees this happen, right? She is challenged. Outside of her control, outside of her power and comfort level, she's challenged in her own thinking. She's forced to realize and to rely on God's love and care for her. This seems to us to be limiting freedom, right? Submitting to God's way, you know. But imagine the prayer-filled life, like like living with the right guardrails, or right? imagine going to Canada's Wonderland and, and going on the roller coaster Leviathan, and, and you know they're, they're about to send you off, and, and, and you're all excited, and then you realize that they there there are no seatbelts on this roller coaster. And, and they say, oh, no, well, we didn't want to enforce anything upon you. And so seatbelts are optional. How many people on that roller coaster are going to put on a seatbelt? I'd say everyone. Nobody says to the attendants, how dare you make me wear this? You're taking away my freedom. No, they're saving your life. Living with the right restraints is where true freedom is found. It's as George Matheson puts it in his prayer that, that he wrote. He said, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render my sword and I shall conquer be. The prayer-filled life seeks to teach us the guardrails. Submitting to God and his way and what he's calling us into isn't taking away our freedom, but living in the right freedom. It's living in the right restraints. But how do we know? How do we know that the the prayer-filled life, that an intimate friendship with God will lead us into a transformation that is for our good? How do we know that we aren't going to get burned by him or used by him or worse, abandoned by him? Well, think about the one who Mary sings about because the the the, the one whom Mary sings about is Jesus Christ. Jesus knew what it was like to be a prayer filled and living in tune with God more than any of us for all of eternity he's been in tune with God, and then he came and he lived among us. He became a human being, often Jesus you know when he was on earth, he would withdraw. He would seek solitude and quietness to nourish and strengthen his his relationship with his Abba, his father. He truly responded to him. There's one story in the gospel where Jesus withdraws to pray and then immediately calls his disciples. Jesus knew that his life flowed from his relationship with his father. And then there was Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed hard hard. And things started to bubble up. And he felt the challenge. And when he was seeking solitude in the garden, he knew that he was within hours of being faced with the most difficult, terrible, and horrendous thing that has ever happened to anyone. You know, Jesus Christ didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't go to the cross out of duty. He went to the cross out of love. He submitted to the will of his Father out of love. He lovingly obeyed. And so Jesus is the perfect image of the prayer-filled life. He was perfectly in tune with his Father, but when he was on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, where are you? Why did you forget me? See, in this moment, as Christ was, was hanging on the cross, he was cast out of tune with, with the Father, his, his Father, and the, and the world. The, the earth shook. Right? Everything went dark. It was out of tune. And his, his followers abandoned him and God himself left him. But what was happening in that moment on the cross is what Jesus Jesus took upon himself. Everything that we fear will happen to us when we pray and respond to the things that bubble up. When God speaks. We fear being abandoned by God and others. We fear that, that God doesn't have our good in mind and so we can't trust him, we can't respond to him. But Jesus on the cross took upon himself the abandonment that we deserve. He he shows us that we don't have to fear being punished by God because Jesus took the punishment upon himself. And so instead, instead, we can go to him. We can trust him. We can follow him, knowing that he descended to hell and was raised up from the dead. And so his, his resurrection assures us, gives us proof that there is hope for us, that there's no place that is outside of God's control or his jurisdiction, jurisdiction. And that we won't be left alone. There is no place we can go on earth where we will be alone. And so through faith in Christ, seeing Christ as the object and the perfecter of our faith, we can enter into a prayer-filled life to live in step with God because we've been reconciled through Christ. Our sin is atoned for. Our debt is paid knowing that he has got us. It is finished. All that he does for us, all that bubbles up inside, all the ways that he challenges us to change is out of deep Love. So what are some of the ways that we can begin to practice this prayer-filled life? Well, Richard Foster suggests a few that are good. He says the best way to begin to put this prayer-filled life in practice is to spend time alone and in silence with God. To listen to Him. This is absolutely key in our world today. You see, we live in a culture of distraction There is always something that is vying for our attention. And so Christians intentionally have to put themselves in places of silence and solitude with God so we can spend time in his presence and listening to him without distraction. This may mean leaving the cell phone upstairs. This may mean turning it off. This may mean going away for a weekend and spending time in quietness, unplugged from everything. We need to find spaces in our lives where we can quiet our soul and listen and pray. Living in tune with God, satisfying the craving of our hearts, is open for all. It's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation. And as we look to Mary, as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, we can practice our eternity and the hope of this world as we freely enter into a loving friendship with God, our creator. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this message this, today. Lord, we thank you that you are uh, a God who, who loves us, who cares for us, and who, who dwelt among us who became human so that you could give us life and hope, so that we could be in a relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit that would open up our eyes to see the beauty of what this is and what the prayer-filled life invites us into, the intimate relationship that you desire for us. Lord, as we live in a, a culture of distraction, uh, a world that is that doesn't value quietness that sees it as unproductive, unhelpful, Lord, would you give us the strength to commit ourselves to this to spend time listening and praying and listening to those things that bubble up inside of us, Lord, as we Uh, know that responding to you often takes courage. We also pray for courage and boldness to respond to the things that you're saying to us. Lord, surround us also with people who love and care for us, who can bounce things off of. Uh, Is this what God is saying to me? Lord, give us good Christian friends, good Christian community, that we may seek your will together. In all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.